Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a super big privilege to be here with you guys. Um, it's been a joy to get to know Ben and uh, Jordan, and we've gotten to know Sam and Chris as well a little bit. And one of the joys of it is that uh, Ben and myself and Ryan all, and Jordan as well, I know, all love great coffee. And so meeting in Olympia for really good coffee is uh, it's an easy effort for us to kind of go the 45 minutes either direction and be able to get together uh, once a month. It's been a super big encouragement. Let me really quickly introduce the other folks here. So uh, Ryan led worship. Ryan is a full-time pastor with us at Summit, um, leads worship, preaches, uh, does a ton of other stuff. His wife, Lori, unfortunately, is tending to uh, one of their sick uh, sons, and so uh, she wasn't able to make it. Uh, this is my wife, Ellie, and uh, we have four daughters that are all here. They range from 16 down to nine, and then um, Jake and Ariel. Ariel works as uh, part-time staff with us as our communications director, and uh, Jake is, um, we're, we're asking him to become a deacon. He still hasn't said yes, um, so we're waiting on that. Uh, Jake serves in a ton of ways, part of a, a pastoral leadership training institute that we do, and their son, Calvin. And then uh, Ryan, his wife, Amy, is sick as well. Uh, Ryan is a, a former church planter and pastor that's in a season, kind of in, not in vocational ministry right now. The Lord's just kind of refreshing and renewing him. And so he's been a part of Summit for about a year with his family, his daughter, Riley and Anna. And so uh, they've actually been here. This is your second time here. So um, yeah, it's wonderful to be here. We've heard so much about you, church, uh, through your pastors. Uh, I want to remind you that you, you are so blessed. You have men, godly men, leading you. And uh, you should praise God for them. Uh, we're so grateful for those guys. And they, they are grateful for you. They love you. They love this city. They love this church. And so uh, be thankful. It's, it's rare in this moment to have godly, faithful men of integrity leading your churches. And so... Um, yeah, thank them. Um, pray for them. Um, I'm excited to be able to dive in this morning uh, to the theme of mission. We're thinking about mission primarily because that's been a lot of our conversations uh, with Ben have been around the church network that we are a part of at Summit. We're a part of a church network called Crossway Network. It's a, a network of friendship churches, um, about 20 of them across the country that partner together uh, to see churches be healthy and plant other churches so that God's mission would go forward. I originally got uh, exposed to Crossway Network uh, through a uh, seminary-level training program up in Seattle. Uh, back in 2013, I was a part of a program at a church up there, met another guy, a pastor who was in my cohort, and we, we became best of friends and I found out that he was a pastor from a church in northern Colorado who just so happened to be part of a network called Crossway. And the more that I heard about this network that was uh, theologically sound, gospel-centered, that, that desired the church to be led by a plurality of uh, elders leading in team together and that wanted to make disciples and see churches planted, the whole network resonated with our values as a church. And so we have maintained a friendship with Crossway for about eight years, and then for about four years have been officially as a church a part of the Crossway Network. Uh, the church that the Cedarlands are down at in Mexico is a part of that network, and so that's originally the connection to our relationship. 
Um, and, and so now Kaleo is looking at what it, what it would look like to be adopted into that network. And for us as churches in Western Washington to be able to partner more for the gospel. And so we're really excited about that, praying for that. I mean, there's such a need here in Western Washington, amen, for good, solid churches that proclaim the gospel and want to see people come from darkness to light. And so uh, we're, we're praying that God would continue to strengthen our partnership with, with you guys and our friendship together. Uh, just this last year, actually, just to mention it, Crossway has had the chance to plant churches in places like uh, Greeley, Colorado, Sheridan, Wyoming, Bozeman, Montana. So if you like hunting, there's a lot of good churches to go to. Um, and one all the way across the country in Bergah, North Carolina. I bet you didn't know there's a place called Bergah just outside of Wilmington. And so our, our prayer, even as we talk with Ben, is, is to strategically pray for God to do similar things here, to see churches planted in the places that have a need for them. Because the church really is God's strategic plan for mission in the world. Now, what do I mean by that? What, what I mean is that the way that God accomplishes his goal in the world, which is to make the good news of the gospel known to a world in need, the way that God does that is really through redeemed communities like a place like Kaleo, making Jesus known in the places that you live, work, learn, play, the places that your rhythm of life happens. That's how mission goes forward. But can we just admit that in the world that we live in right now, that task of mission, that task of making Jesus known is incredibly difficult, isn't it? The great 20th century poet and philosopher Bob Dylan once said that the times, they are a-changing. Now, he said that back in 1964, almost 70 years ago, and it is as much or more true in 2022 as it was in 1964, isn't it? And so the question that I want to ask us this morning, just for the few moments that we have together, the question that I want us to consider is, what does it look like for us individually and corporately to accomplish God's mission in the moment that we find ourselves? What does it look like for us individually and us corporately to accomplish the mission that God's given us in the moment that we find ourselves? There's no better passage to answer that question than the passage that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, I want to invite you to open them with me and we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. Just to introduce you a little bit to the context of 1 Peter, Peter writes to a church that's facing pressures that aren't a whole lot different than what we face today. This was a church that was surrounded by a pagan culture. It was a church that was in the midst of a culture that was antagonistic toward the gospel, a culture that often resented the church, that often ridiculed them, that that this church often found themselves on the margins of culture. And so Peter writes to encourage them, to exhort them about the hope that they have in their witness to the gospel. And in verses 9 to 12, Peter lays out in a way that's so helpful for us really what it looks like to do mission from the margins of culture. And so if you've got your Bible, let's read this together. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, would you meet us by your spirit through your word this morning? Open our hearts, enlighten our minds, Lord, motivate our hands for all that you're calling us to do in the moment you've put us, we pray, for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Peter here gives us three things that we need to understand if we're going to do mission well. He helps us understand these three things, the mission that we're on, the moment that we're in, and the method that we use. And so I don't know if any of you are note takers, but feel free to jot those three things down. We're going to track through them in this passage. You can very simply title them this way, the mission, the moment, and the method. And so let's dive into this passage. Number one, I want you to see the mission that Peter says that we are on. Look down at verse nine. Let me read it again. Peter writes this. He says to to this church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Look down at your page. Paul, excuse me, I was preaching this morning on Galatians, so I will constantly stumble and say, Paul's writing this. No, Peter. Peter tells us here a definition for mission. Do you see it there on your page? Look down at verse 9. Peter's argument is this. He, He says to this church, you have been chosen. You've been called by God. You've been rescued by Jesus. You've been brought together as this holy people for a purpose. What is that purpose? You see it in this purpose statement, right? So that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the mission that Jesus has given to us. That's your mission personally. That's your mission, Kaleo, corporately to make known the one who has already made himself known to you. To proclaim his excellencies. And friends, that mission isn't new. That mission actually has always, from the very beginning, been God's mission for his people. You think of the biblical story, go all the way back to the garden. God places Adam and Eve there and he creates them in his image to do what? to reflect his glory out into the world around them. Track forward just a few chapters in that that story of God's redemptive plan. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. He calls calls him in essence out of darkness, doesn't he? Out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he blesses him so that what? So that he and his offspring would bring God's blessing into the world. They would proclaim his excellencies. This continues to be God's plan. It's why God knits together his people Israel, that they would be a light to the nations. It's why God uses his people over and over, even in exile, to be this light, this 
proclamation of his goodness to the world around them. And ultimately, it's why Jesus, some of the first commands that he gives his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount are what? He tells them that they will be salt and light to the world. That they will be a city on the hill to be seen by those around them, to see the glory of God. And so this mission has always been God's mission for his people to to shine his glory into the world. The Westminster Catechism, if you're familiar with that little question and answer discipleship tool, the first question of the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? If you know, you can say it along with me, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? So this has always been the, the mission that God has given his people to proclaim his glory, to make his excellencies known in the world that they find themselves in. This is what the church exists for. And so mission, friends, like mission isn't just us as pastors wanting the church to grow. Mission isn't just your leaders trying to have a smart branding decision for the church. Mission isn't just what's on trend. It's, it, it's not just what's popular. I mean, mission for the entire history of God's people has been the, the center of what God is calling his people to be, a missional people. Mission is really us allowing ourselves to be swept up into God's mission in the world, into his desire for his glory and goodness to be known on planet Earth. But often our biggest roadblock in accomplishing that mission is our own tendency to not proclaim God's glory, but get caught up in our own glory. A few weeks ago, we had a family pictures done and we, we went through that stage that you just don't get family pictures done. Any of you families at that stage where like, it's not even worth the effort. Yeah. I see that hand. Yeah, it's, it's real. And so our, our children now, our youngest is nine. And so we've kind of passed that stage where, where it's more stressful than it's worth to get family pictures. And so we went out, beautiful September day, we went out to get family pictures done as the sun was setting at this park. And I feel so blessed. I, in a family picture, it, between four daughters and a beautiful wife, I'm like this thorn between the roses. They make me look good. And so we got family pictures done. And of course, the photographer always sends you some proofs of what those pictures look like, kind of the, the first fruits of the batch, so to speak. And of course, when we got those first pictures, I began to take a look at them. And imagine, I, I've got these four gorgeous daughters, this beautiful wife, but I begin to look at these pictures. And let me ask you, who do you think is the first person that I began to look at in each of those pictures? Yes. Yes. And don't judge. I know you do it too. Right? We, we all do it. We all do it. Because why? Because the world revolves around us. Right? This is our human tendency to make the world about ourselves and our own glory. And so the call to make God's glory known, man, we get in the way so much. But the good news for us, friends, the good news is that Jesus loves us too much to let us just stay in that selfish spot. That's why Jesus gives us this mission that involves us, a mission that isn't ultimately about us. Our mission is to proclaim the worth of another. That's mission defined. 
Now, there's a second thing that I want you to see here in this verse about mission, and, and it's this. Mission, if it's defined as proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, then mission also here we see isn't just an activity. Mission is also an identity. Mission isn't just an activity. It's also an identity. No, notice the way that Peter sandwiches this definition of mission. He, he brackets it with this. Let me read it again. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the definition that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I wish I had time in a whole sermon to just unpack the layers of this terminology that Peter uses. It's powerful. Most of it comes from the Old Testament. Peter's taking these Old Testament terms for God's people, and he's beginning to apply them to God's new covenant people, the church. It's beautiful what he's doing. He's saying to you this morning, if you're a Christian here, that what is most true about you is that you've been swept up into God's redemptive purposes. You've been redeemed, forgiven, adopted. You've been joined to God's cosmic people. You've been swept up into a new identity. And fundamental to that identity is that you are a people on mission. Like most of us are so busy. I, I don't know, like sometimes I come down to Aberdeen from the craziness of Pierce County, King County area, and I think Aberdeen is just this slow, sleepy town. But I'm sure all, all of you are as busy as I am. If you're at the young kids stage, you're running your kids here and there. Your teenagers are starting to go off to do youth sports and school and a million other activities. We are just a busy people in a busy culture, aren't we? And so in the midst of that, in the midst of kids and hobbies and friendships and church life, I mean, we're, we're juggling a million different things. If mission is just another checkbox on our already busy to-do lists, it's never going to happen, is it? But let me ask you, what if mission, rather than just being another one of those plates that I'm spinning in my life, what if mission actually becomes how I determine to spin those plates? That it becomes what informs the way that I carry and juggle all the other things in my life. In many ways, that's what Peter is pressing us toward here, that mission isn't just an activity that we add to our busy schedules. It's what infuses all that happens within those schedules. Are you tracking with me? Mission isn't just an activity, it's primarily actually an identity. And so Peter's inviting us into thinking through our life through the context of that new identity as a missional people. So there's our mission defined, there's our missional identity. Can we just admit that that all sounds great? I mean, theologically, conceptually, that sounds good, but the, the reality is that for a bunch of reasons, Living a life that is focused on mission in the places that we live, work, learn, play is increasingly hard in the moment that we live, isn't it? So we've seen, number one, the mission. I want you to see here, number two, what Peter says about the moment. 
what he says about the moment that we're in. Look, look down with me at verse 11. Peter writes this, I urge you, he says, and pay attention to these words. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, why does Peter use this language? You read through 1 Peter. This is actually the language that Peter uses over and over again. In chapter 1, as he's opening his letter, he addresses it to who he calls the elect exiles. In chapter 1, verse 17, he exhorts this church to conduct themselves, he says, with fear throughout the time of their exile. Now, is this church in exile? Not in this moment. They're simply living in the midst of this pagan empire. And yet, Peter says that the, the paradigm that they're to live with in this moment that we're placed is a new way of living. It's the way of exile. These, these believers had come to faith right smack in the middle of this pagan, pluralistic, first century world of the Roman Empire, and life was hard. I mean, they walked out their door to slander and abuse and persecution. This church community very much found themselves on the margins of culture, without power, without influence, without a voice. Does that sound familiar? Yet, this increasingly is the moment that we find ourselves in. I mean, increasingly, this is the world we live in. We, we are entering and have entered in many ways, depending on where you live in the country that we call home. We've walked into what many sociologists and people in the know about this would call a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture. Over the last 10, 20 years, the landscape of culture has just drastically changed, and it continues to change. Now, a huge part of that is that for many, many, in many ways, over the last couple of hundred years, the, the Christian story has occupied this central place of our culture. And so even if people don't trust in Jesus for salvation, the reality is that, that the Christian story, Christian morality has driven our culture, but that, that's increasingly being displaced. Right where 50 years ago, you might have people that were going through difficult times, that were struggling with life. Where would they go for help? They would go to the church. But in 2022, where do the majority of people go? They don't go to the church. They click on Amazon.com. They go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. They're not, they're not coming through the doors of the church. It was a time in America where the church had a predominant influence, but man, especially in a place like Western Washington, that just isn't the case anymore. And I'm not saying that for us to, to just lament that. It's just the reality that we find ourselves in. If you were to stand on the street corner, I don't know exactly what Aberdeen's like, but I'm imagining, certainly in Tacoma, this is the case. If you were to stand in downtown Tacoma and you were to just kind of have a, a clipboard and a survey and you were to ask people, uh, um, is Christianity good for society? The vast majority of people would answer that question in the negative. They'd say no. Every statistical metric right now is telling us that we're this society that's both increasingly secular and also increasingly religious, and yet we're less and less Christian. They're complicated times that we're in. And the last two years have added to that, haven't they, with political polarization and and all of the different transitions that we've gone through. 
This is a hard time to be on mission. But Peter, at least in the first century, he, he sees that not as an obstacle. He sees it as an opportunity. If we just simply reset our expectations of how we live in this world, what Peter's advocating is what might be new for many of us, a new way to relate to the mo- this moment of exile. He's, he's pressing us toward the way of exile. The way of exile. From Genesis 3 onward, God's people always have had an exilic identity. They've lived as if this world is not their home. You walk through the story of Scripture and you can see it over and over and over again that God's people very much in some sense are not fully at home this side of Genesis 3 in this fallen world. We are not completely at home, are we? And so that fundamentally changes how we live here. But it it doesn't cause us somehow to just distance ourselves from the world. Many Christians see that as the way, but that's not what Peter's calling us to. We're not meant here to just be too spiritually minded for any earthly good. That's not the way of exile. Instead, the way of exile is what the, the paradigm for Peter is God's Old Testament people in exile. So if you get your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Flip back to your Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29. You see, when Peter says to this church, when he urges them to live as sojourners and exiles, what's What's popping into Peter's mind is not just that they would see this world as not their home, it's that they would live in this world in a certain way. And so if you got your Bibles open, Genesis, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 29, I want us to read together, starting at verse 4. Jeremiah is writing to God's people in exile, exhorting them how to live while they are in Babylon. And here's what he says to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's how God wants them to live. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may Bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. In other words, what he's telling them is, hey, live life in this world. Don't pull back from it. Press into it. Live the way you normally would. Why? Keep reading. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you want to know Peter's philosophy of living as exiles in this world? It's coming straight out of Jeremiah 29. Press into this city and seek its good. Pray for it. Because in its good, you will find your good. In other words, what Peter is saying is that there's this tension that we live in. We are very much this exilic outpost. We are this community of exiles that that both 
loves the place that we live, that loves the people that we live with, that's engaged for the good of the place that we find ourselves. We live as good citizens here. We vote. We serve the city. We work for its good. And yet, for all that we allow ourselves to be pressed into this place that God's put us in, we don't allow ourselves to be tied to it. Do you see the tension? To love the place God's put us and yet not have our ultimate allegiance here. That's what it means for us to live as exiles. This moment very much is causing us to have to relearn that. Throughout church history, you look at the history of God's people, you certainly look worldwide right now at the persecuted church, and there are Christians that know how to live this way. This is new for us. And yet, this moment is inviting us into the opportunity rather than the obstacle of it. Now, what does that actually practically look like for us to live as exiles on mission? Well, well, Peter actually shows us here, and it's the third thing that I want you to see in this passage. Peter gives us a method to live in this moment that we find ourselves. It's here in verses 11 and 12. This is the third thing I want you to see, the method. Follow along, verses 11 and 12. Let's read it together. Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter here says two things. Two things about how we do mission in this moment. He says that there's a way that our identity causes us to both pull back from the culture that we live in in some ways and push into the culture that we live in in some ways. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, look first again at verse 11 here. There's a way, Peter says, that this moment should cause us to pull back from culture. What does he say here? He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, what's Peter saying? He's saying, if you're a sojourner or an exile, there are some things in this culture that you are going to abstain from. You are going to pull back from. You're going to remove yourself from. The the word literally means in Greek to distance yourself from something. And so there's ways in this moment that as Christians, as a church, we're going to have to pull back from culture. My wife and I spent about 10 years over in China as missionaries uh, focused on a people group in Western China called Tibetans. And Tibetans have um, amazing bad food. In fact, one of those items of um, really bad food is what is called a Tibetan blood sausage. Tibetan blood sausages are about like you would imagine. They are a sausage filled with blood and hung up to dry on a piece of string for several months while flies buzz around in the house. Now, as a sojourner among the Tibetans, I knew that for the sake of my health, for the sake of my stomach, that I was going to need to abstain from that particular meal. Now, Peter here is not talking simply about food or traditions or culture, cultural norms. What he is saying is that there are certain things 
to the way people live in the moment we find ourselves that as believers, we are going to have to pull back from. We're going to have to pull back from. We're going to have to separate ourselves from things. Let, let me give you an example. We, we live in a culture, I think you'll recognize this, a culture where the governing principle is, hey, if it, if it feels good for you, if it makes you happy, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, go ahead and do it. That's the cultural moment that we live in. And Peter says, we are just governed by a different ethic than that, aren't we? Right? There's a way that we just don't do whatever feels good to us, whatever sounds good to us. We submit ourselves to what God is asking us in the scriptures. And so there's going to be ways that that, that hits right up against values and norms that our culture around us has. And in those moments, we are going to have to very much pull back. We're going to have to be governed by a different ethic. We don't embrace whatever feels good in the moment. We wage war against, against those things. And so our lives will just look different, won't they? Increasingly. Peter actually says later on, if you read forward in First Peter in chapter 4, he tells the church, the time, that, the, the time has passed that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness with respect to this. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What Peter's saying is that we are meant to be this holy people. Now hear him. He's saying we're a holy people, not a holier-than-thou people. But that holiness, it's, it has a missional thrust to it. Right? It's, it's meant to, pe- to make people sit up and pay attention. I play, I, somehow I get my 42-year-old body to do this. I play weekly uh, men's rec league basketball in, up in Tacoma area. And a, a number of weeks ago, uh, we had a game. We ended up winning. It w- game went well. But somehow one of the new players on my team who's not a believer found out from another one of my teammates that I was a pastor. And after the game, he came up to me and he said to me, he said to me, dang, you a preacher? And of course, you know, it, me needing some security and affirmation, I was sure that the reason he was so shocked was that I don't play basketball like a 42-year-old preacher. And so he, he must just have been so shocked. Now, the, the reason that he was shocked was that it, it blew so many of the boxes that he had for what a Christian should look like, the way they should act. And friends, that's the way our lives should be in this moment we find ourselves, right? Where we can be both a holy people and not a holier-than-thou people, where we can both push in and pull back from culture, where we can love the place that we live, that is going to stand out in a cultural moment like ours. And so these holy lives are meant to make others pay attention. They're meant to have a missional thrust. You see that actually in verse 12, Peter writes, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, although we we pull back from certain things in our culture, we're not pulling back from relationship, are we? In fact, we're pressing into it. Peter here assumes that we live in proximity to those who don't know Jesus, that we're close enough to the people that we work with, to the people that we live beside, to the people that we we interact with on a regular weekly basis, 
Peter's assuming that we're close enough to those people that they'd actually be able to observe our lives, observe our life as the church together, and take notice of it. Take notice of it. You see, the last thing that Peter wants is for the church to just become a Christian cul-de-sac. Now, no knock on cul-de-sacs. Maybe you don't have them in Aberdeen. We do in suburban Tacoma. I live on one. And I love my cul-de-sac for a number of different reasons. Number one, it is incredibly safe for my kids to go out and play. Nobody drives into that cul-de-sac if they don't actually live there or know someone that lives there. And if they do drive in, you know what happens? They circle that cul-de-sac and they drive out very quickly. All the neighbors know each other, even though my cul-de-sac is not the friendliest. There's other cul-de-sacs where you get together for 4th of July barbecues, you hang out together, your kids grow up together, it becomes this incredibly safe environment. But friends, that's not what the church is meant to be. It's not that we don't enjoy being together, amen, we do. And yet our, our ultimate goal, our ultimate end, isn't just that we would be this enclosed little community where people drive in and drive out. It's that people would drive in and they'd get a taste in that cul-de-sac of what life following Jesus can look like. That's what the church is meant to be. So Peter says that's what it means for us to be sojourners and exiles. We don't just separate. We, we press into people who don't know Jesus, and we press in enough even if there's opposition to that, people are close enough to see something beautiful and compelling and attractive in that. I mean, in this moment that we live in, you could invite people to church until you're blue in the face and they just won't come. But there's a way that when they're able in the rhythms of their ordinary life to see the church be the church, to see us love and care for one another, to see what it looks like to live following Jesus, it is a compelling witness to the world. And some of those very people in your lives will come through the door of your home far before they will ever come through the door of the church. And there's an opportunity for us there. Michael Green, who's a church historian in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, he estimates that more than 80% of the evangelism that happened in the early church was not done by professional ministers or evangelists. It was done by ordinary people just simply explaining themselves and their life to close family and friends, to the people that they were among. People paid attention to this gospel because these people that they knew, that they lived with, that they worked with, that they spent time with, their lives begged questions about this gospel. You open up the book of Acts, and I don't know about you, but I open up the book of Acts, and sometimes I'm like, man, where is the strategic plan here? There, there wasn't one, was there? I mean, the plan was this, that people would wait on Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and go out into the world full of boldness to make him known. That was the strategic plan. And yet that was exactly God's strategic plan to make his excellencies known in the world. I mean, within a few hundred years of Jesus' resurrection, if you know the history of the church, the church just exploded from this tiny band of ragtag followers of Jesus into a movement that overcame the Roman Empire. Tertullian, who was a church historian, in one of his writings defending the Christian faith, he talks about how the, 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 these Christians' pagan neighbors were just shocked by their life. He writes, he, he writes about the church. This is what the pagans would say about these Christians. 
He says, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. In other words, it was the way they loved one another as community that characterized them. The pagans saw this. See how they love one another, they say. That was the remark of the pagan world. See how they love one another. That's the reality that we get to put on display to a watching world. But it's just these simple countercultural lives that made the world stand up and take notice. As I end, I want to circle back to the question we started with. What does mission look like for us in this moment? What does it look like for us to live on mission in the middle of the ambivalence and the antagonism of a place like the Northwest? There was an article that was featured a while back, several years ago, in the Tacoma News Tribune. And the headline of the article in the Tacoma newspaper was simply this. It it said this, forget making friends. Half of Washington residents don't even want to talk to you. I don't know about here. Again, I'm not familiar with your context, but this can very much be true where we live. The the article looked at a recent survey. It was across Washington. asked a handful of questions of the social habits of people. 40% of them said, it's not important to me to make new friends. And 49% said that they did not even want to interact with people that they didn't know. That is pre-COVID, pre-all the issues that we've gone through of polarization, where people, I think, are even more fearful about that kind of interaction. And that's the moment that we find ourselves in. It's the moment we're called to make God's mission known. But friends, that's exactly the kind of moment that we were made for as the church. You have an opportunity, Kaleo, right right here in Grace Harbor, through your life together, through your gospel communities, through your life as a gathered church on Sunday, through your lives individually in the places that each of you lives, works, learns, plays, does hobbies, hangs out with your kids. You have an opportunity to make Jesus known, to proclaim Jesus. His excellencies, and those moments for many people in Grace Harbor, those moments might be the the only touch points that they have to taste and touch and see and smell what the real Jesus is really like. And so what an opportunity for us. The church is God's strategy for mission, and that's not a program. That's simply us living lives that are centered not on ourselves, but are centered on Jesus and his mission. Amen? I mean, we've got the best news on planet Earth. Right? We've got this news of a Savior who has done everything to make us his own, who's died the death that we deserve, lived the life that we failed to live, and risen again that we might be adopted into his family and enjoy new life. What better message for a dead and dying planet is that? And it's the message that we're going to come in a moment here to celebrate at the Lord's Supper. I was thinking as we were coming to, to celebrate the, the meal together that this meal, in many ways, is a missional meal. You realize that? What do I mean by that? I mean, Jesus says to us, Paul, actually Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 11, that through this meal, right, we proclaim something. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If we're going to proclaim out there the realities of what God has done, we we need to begin 
by proclaiming it to one another in here. And so there's a way as we partake of this meal in a moment that we are in this moment looking at one another and proclaiming the truth of the gospel to each other. We're gospeling one another. Friend, this is what Jesus has done for you. Brother, sister, this is what Jesus has done for you. And so what a joy for us to receive together the gospel so that we might give that gospel out into the world around us. Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite Ben to lead us into the supper together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the redemption that you've worked in us, that you have done what we could never do, rescuing us from our own sin and bondage and darkness and bringing us into your light. I mean, we, we, we can't fathom the realities of what you have made us as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once we were not a people, and now we are God's people. Lord, allow us not to just hoard those blessings that you've given to us, but to let them overflow from us into a needy, dying world for your glory alone. Amen.